Welcome to the teaching ministry of Judah Oloromai, compelling consecration, provoking repentance, and inspiring worship by the preaching and teaching of God's word and the miraculous demonstration of his power. Get ready to experience the transforming power of his word. Questions have quite varied, um, various subjects and various issues that people need clarity on. And I'm not really, I'm going to speak by utterance and inspiration. It's not like I prepare to answer them, but I prefer to be spontaneous because um, if I'm teaching very briefly, it is best I give an answer of the spirit. If I'm teaching thoroughly, it's best I give an answer out of study and um, but I already have a backlog of doctrinal wisdom that I can use to answer many of these questions in the spirit and by the spirit. So some of the questions, I'm just really going to be examining it as I read it out. Some of them, I've just looked at them casually. Or do I going to do justice to them by the Holy Ghost? Hallelujah. The first question says, is it okay as a Christian to have tattoos? Dyed hair and piercings, especially as a guy. Tattoos, dyed hair and piercings. Is it okay? Firstly, we must define what okay is. Now, on a moral level, there is nothing wrong with dyed hair, tattoos, or piercings. It is not sinful. Um, I'm not sure what piercings mean exactly. Okay? Probably earrings and nose rings and all of that. Sinful cannot be the phrase to describe that. So, tattoos, dyed hair, not sinful. I know that in Africa there's a lot of hypocrisy. Many of the churches say that, or many churches that they claim that dyed hair is sinful. The musicians they listen to, because the musicians they listen to dyed their hair. And they dance to it and sing to it. But we have to approach it very, very holistically and thoroughly. So it is not sinful in a moral sense. However, we have taught you again and again that the number one question to ask as a Christian is not, is it a sin? That's a very low way to live. We have agreed it's not a sin. But just because it is not a sin does not mean it should be done. Anytime you want to do something, first of all, ask the question, how will it affect the kingdom of God? Will it help advance the cause of the gospel? And the more we stretch that question, the more we also ask specific questions like, will it be a distraction to the, to the gospel that I'm trying to preach? If I walk into this church, for instance, with a tattoo on my forehead, a nose ring and an earring, Will you comfortably listen to me as a man of God? Why we might establish the fact that it is not a sin? Will that aid facilitate or obstruct and hinder the course of the gospel through my lips? These are the more salient questions you need to ask as a Christian. So firstly, it is not sinful. However, if, especially in a culture where the perception is that dressings like that are notorious amongst people that are irresponsible or people that are occultic or people that are generally not good members of society. It is best to abstain from it. It's more of an ethical principle than a moral principle. 
Paul says, if eating meat will not allow my brother to stand, I will no longer eat meat. Not because eating meat is a sin, but I'm trying to help my brother to stand. So if wearing tattoos will not allow people listening to the gospel from me, I will not wear it. I was teaching the school of ministry this concept. If you see a doctor wearing tattoo, who pierced his nose, sagged his, his trousers, will you submit your Botox for injection? Will you trust him for, with surgery? Trust him with your life, with surgery? Those are the issues. So there's a way you appear. I was reading on Twitter the other day that you cannot apply for certain positions in the United Kingdom once you have a tattoo. For instance, in the police department, you cannot be a police officer once you have a tattoo. Because there's a perception they have about tattoos that suggests these people are criminal in their inclination, or criminal in their perspective. So anything that obstructs the gospel of God through your life and ministry, abstain from it. This is where priesthood of the believer comes to play. You cannot just do things because it is legitimate morally. You must ensure that what you are doing does not obstruct or hinder the gospel of Christ. Is that clear? Yeah. Right. Second question here. Is it okay to flirt with someone if you like the person? I was asking my wife casually, what does it mean to flirt? And maybe some of you might give me an answer. Because checking the dictionary and the regular meanings may not really harmonize. It's too more flat. Maybe we need to define what flirting really is. Basically, if you get involved in a relationship with the opposite sex and it is not friendship, you have no business, or rather, if you get involved in a relationship with the opposite sex that is limited to friendship, you have no business suggesting or giving romantic signals. It is devilish, manipulative. It's an expression of witchcraft, to say the least. I told you this last two weeks thereabout, or last week. How did the Bible say we should treat our ladies in the faith as sisters? Do you flirt with your sister? Younger ladies treat as sisters. Older women treat as mothers. You see, that's the principle. These ethical principles would keep us from unnecessary rubbish. So if flirting means that you send romantic signals, you try to create an atmosphere that affirms romance beyond the regular friendship, that's, once again, demonic, devilish witchcraft. Because what you are doing is that you are toying with people's emotions, you are toying with people's hearts, only to leave them high and dry. That is something that Jesus will not do. Did Jesus flirt with anybody? Jesus knew he was never going to marry. So there was a way he carried himself because he didn't want to give anybody a signal. Mary Magdalene, all the women that were around him, they knew that this one is not interested in wife. He's not interested in wife. He didn't send any signal that made them look like, ha, one day, one day, me too, I will marry the carpenter's son and I shall be called the wife of the Lord. They never had such imaginations because the way Jesus carried himself, everybody knew this way he stood. When I was a young man, that was the way I carried myself. There were things I did not do. There were signals I did not give. Even before I began to cut, when I began to cut, of course, it was also clear. The point I'm making is this. Do not create an impression that will label you as a manipulator. If you are not going to marry her, I'm not saying if you are... See, as a young man, young man, are you listening to me? Have high standards. All these tags that men carry, man of the family, head of the family, it should not be in vain. 
If you are head of the family, it's not just because you have a penis. You, your standards must be high. You must be trustworthy. If you, if you, for any reason, suggest that you are cooking a romantic meal, please ensure you cook to the end and eat it. Don't throw signals just to charge ladies up and then make them feel like they are stupid. Many young men have carried curses on their head. People put the Bible on the ground and say, Brother Tunde, I curse you today. For five years, you were treating me like, like, like we were going somewhere. And today I asked you, how far now? Have you spoken to mommy and daddy? You said, eh? Did I ever say I love you? They will curse you and listen to me. You had better take your life seriously. Because if you deliberately waste a lady's life and you think you are going to go scot-free, you are joking. You think you just quote the scripture, eh, in Christ, I cannot be cursed. You are joking. You waste people's destinies, waste their life and think that you say, in Christ, I cannot be cursed. The curse will catch you. Even me, I will add to it. Don't waste people's time. So, if that's what you mean by flirting, because don't wound yourself, oh. Don't wound yourself. You may think you are going to get away with it, but nah. There is a law of sowing and reaping. It's not about whether you're forgiving of your sins, but there's a, there are natural laws that God has set in motion. There's a law of sin, there's a law of justice. If you deliberately swindle people, dupe people of their emotions, of their affections, and you think it's just a game, oh my boy. Are we clear on that? Number three here. Reverend John spoke about the devil being in the second heaven. And why is it that people say they descended and went to hell when they died? Well, that, I have to give a few references. Reverend John spoke about three heavens and he showed from scriptures how they mean the first, the second, the third heaven. The third heaven is the as it were, throne of God. The second heaven is the headquarters of Satan. The third heaven is the atmospheric heaven which we can also see the skies and beyond that a little bit. Now, the idea of hell is in two dimensions. There is a temporal place called hell and there is a permanent place called hell. Now, theological lingua may mess your mind up but let me explain from natural illustrations. If somebody commits an offense and he has not yet been tried in court, he can be in a police cell for some days, weeks, depending on the kind of police station that caught him. He has not been tried in court, so he has not been given a final sentence. When he's given a final sentence, he's now taken to maybe maximum prison, Kirikiri, where he will probably spend the rest of his life. That's an illustration that captures the reality of hell in a temporal and in a permanent dimension. So when people die now, as it were, they go to, as it were, a temporal place of suffering. Just like we read about Abraham, the rich man, and Lazarus. As soon as the rich man died, because he did not believe in God, the Bible says that he went, he was taken to hell, or he went to hell. Okay? And the description suggests that he was close to where Lazarus was, so he could see Lazarus and see Abraham. What was described or the terminology to describe that place was called bosom of Abraham or in some other languages, theological languages, we say things like paradise. Have you heard of that before? 
Come on, are we still together? But they are temporal because the final judgment has not yet been done. The white throne judgment has not yet been done. That's the, so those places are temporal places of the dead. When a believer sleeps in the Lord, the Bible says to be absent in body is to be present with the Lord. So he does not go to hell. He goes to a place, but that place is not a permanent place. The same way when a non-believer dies, he doesn't really go to the permanent hell because the, the, what we read in Revelations is that the lake of fire and hell will be merged as it were. That will be a permanent place of residence for the demons and for Satan and all those that oppose God. So even demons right now, they are not in hell in the sense of a permanent place of torture and punishment. That's why you see they will always ask Jesus, have you come to torment us before our time? The demons know that there's a time. Satan knows there's a time where his knees on the earth as it were will run out. So, now, back to the question because I need to really answer, I need to really answer the question specifically. Why is it that people say they descended and went to hell when they died? We're talking about probably visions. Kenneth Hagin, for instance, say when he died as a teenager, when he was not saved, he just noticed he was descended. So simple logic, it was going to a place that was a temporal location for unbelievers. Now, because spiritual realities can be very interesting, what I mean is that if somebody dies, geography has to be well understood. When he sees himself descending, it is not necessarily a physical descension. Hello? Just as if, you, if somebody carries rockets and say, we want to ascend to heaven, we'll, we'll shoot to the heaven. It can keep going, keep going, keep going. It won't get to the throne of God. Because when we say ascended to heaven, and Jesus actually, they saw him ascend. It's just describing movement. It does not mean that if somebody just begins to levitate now, it will, it will go, 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 go. It will pass first heaven, second heaven. Third, it will not, no, no, that's not what it's talking about. But because hell is described as an inferior place, a low place, a place distant from the presence of God, then you see a sense of descending. doesn't mean that if you begin to dig the ground now, you eventually get to hell. Even though I read a research some years ago that the middle of the earth is actually the hottest part of the earth, which now makes it suggestive of the fact that maybe hell is actually within the belly of the earth. But it's not a physical descending in that sense. So if, if, if the second heaven is the aircraft of Satan, why do people descend to hell? Those descriptions are not necessarily physically geographical in, the, in that sense. But they refer to a fact that a man is being separated from God eternally. He is descending, going to be separated from God and he's going to experience the eternal torment that belongs to those who do not believe God. Is that clear? Okay. Next question, why do some really bad things happen to, to even the fervent and good Christians that serve God? I will rephrase. Why was Jesus as fervent, as perfect as he was? Why was he killed on the cross? Why was Apostle Paul beheaded? Why was Peter crucified upside down? Why was uh, Bartholomew skinned alive? Why was John thrown into hot oil? <laughs> Many of us do not understand the great sufferings that have taken place 
before 2023, we, are, we showed up in 1999, we began to ask some questions. And what we call bad things are really very interesting. Because by the time we begin to compare the scripts of bad things, <laughs> we will see that many of the things we call bad things are nothing compared to the real bad things. But we can still establish the fact that bad things happen to good Christians. Why? First of all, I would recommend a series that I taught, The Theology of God's Goodness. It's a two-hour teaching. It thoroughly explains the subject. But first of all, or by the way, and subsequently, let us establish a few things. The earth where we are is not in control of God in an absolute sense. I will say that again. Because many of you, you have heard wrong teachings about the sovereignty of God. The earth is not in an absolute sense controlled by God. That's why demons are still here. That's why Satan can still do bad things. That's why, you know, witchcraft can still happen. The place that God controls absolutely is heaven. What I mean by absolutely is that on the earth, God permitted some things. It's not like God is not in control or God cannot absolutely take control. He's God. He created the earth. However, he did not, you see, because of the justice side of God or because God is just. Everybody say God is just. One more time, God is just. You see, understanding the nature of God explains all the questions of humanity. God set in motion a principle of dominion. He gave Adam dominion. And that principle, God respected the principle. Adam took dominion and gave it to Satan. God did not do a joke and say, hey, you gave dominion to Satan. I will come and just delete everybody and start again. No, God respected the contract. God respects contracts. The person I gave dominion has to rule. So if Adam gave his dominion to Satan, Satan has to rule until the wisdom of God eventually by by establishing the covenant of grace now takes back the earth from Satan. Either by recreating a new earth or by refurbishing the present earth. Are we still together? I'm trying to explain something here. So the earth where we are in is the only place where we can experience bad things. When we get to heaven, there's no bad. Now, you must as a Christian have an eternal perspective. You cannot live for 100 years of your life and define your, your, your existence based on that 100 years and say, why do bad things always happen to good people? 100 years is nothing compared to eternity. Really nothing. So in the scope of things, <laughs> really, yeah, even if all the 100 years, it was all bad, in eternity, you're not even going to remember. But why bad things happen even to good people is because we are on the earth. And the earth is not in absolute control of God. There are other forces at work. That's why they could kill Jesus. That's why they could kill the apostles. That's why they could persecute the church. That's why six million Jews were executed by Hitler and his army. That's why Hamas could launch rockets, thousands of them into Israeli territory, rape women and children and kill them. And these people, as it were, are the people of God, but we're on the earth. So we must learn how to enforce goodness through certain things. For instance, prayer. Thy will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. True, for instance, moral reforms. The more 
the family is broken down or the family structure is corrupt, the more society will be corrupt. And if society is corrupt, we're going to have increased criminality. If there are increased criminals or if there's increase in criminality, even good people will suffer. The people that are being kidnapped, that are being robbed, some of them are believers, Christians. But it is also human beings that are doing the robbing. Some of the people that are robbers and kidnappers, their name is Abraham, Moses. Some of them may even appear to be religious. Are we clear here? As long as we're on the earth, this present earth, where there are other forces at work, evil will still exist. Evil will stop existing when that scripture will be fulfilled, when it says that it will put his enemies under his feet and then subdue the last enemy, which is death. When death is finally subdued, which is in the realm of immortality, the, the age to come, and there is a new heaven and a new earth, as it were, there will no longer be evil in the world. But as long as we are in the world, there will be evil because Satan is the god of this world. But you can minimize the evil. Amen? Amen. If you marry a good wife like me, you can minimize the evil. If you raise your children in the way of the Lord, you can minimize the evil. If you keep good friends, you can minimize the evil. So, but you cannot eliminate evil. Not in this world. Jesus did not eliminate evil. Not in this world. Because of the Satan factor. Once there is no Satan, you see, the author of evil is Satan. Amen? Amen. Before Satan showed up, there was no evil. There was no evil. So the reason why good things or good people experience bad things is because Satan still has an influence on the earth and good people are still on the earth. Alright? Glory to God. Next question here. People that beg on the streets and use the person that gave them money for ritual or something bad. What should we do? Should we still give to those on the streets that look like they can walk or do things on their own and are just lazy? I answered the question last week, but let me re-emphasize it. First of all, as a Christian, stop believing the possibility of being used for ritual. Except you're a mumu Christian. For instance, you know that somebody is a yahoo boy and you're dating him. Or it's your bestie, you're a mumu Christian. If you're used for ritual, it's good. It, it, it affirms your mumuness. It's good. Oh yeah. Because he that works with the wise shall be wise. The companion of fools shall be destroyed. That's how it works. So, in the day Jehoshaphat went to fight with the king Ahab, he was almost killed. He was a righteous man, but he was partnered with a wicked man. He was almost killed. So, the possibility of being used for ritual, stop even thinking it exists as a Christian with all your Holy Ghost. Anybody will say one is for a ritual. <laughs> the, see, if, if Christians are persecuted for the sake of the gospel, different case. But you go use temple of Holy Ghost for ritual. They do not go walk. Start thinking like a Christian. If a Christian dies for the sake of the gospel, it's a, different, a Christian is used for ritual. Nah, Abana. You serve reason now. Amen. Amen. I remember sometimes ago, ladies were told not to spread their underwear outside. And some people are using pants and bra for ritual. If I am a lady, as a Christian, I hear that kind of thing. Or the lady can spread my own outside. I say, come and use it. I will spoil your market. I will pray in tongues on the pants and spread it. Go and try and pick it. You think everybody is a goat? You think we. Amen. Amen. 
Or you don't believe that your clothes can carry the anointing? Some of these things, go and experiment them. Don't let anybody threaten you and make you look like you are just a cockroach. Are you Christmas good that can just die anyhow? Come on, he watches over the sparrows. How much more you? So don't, don't give a beggar money and be thinking, what is it for ritual? If he tries it, he may die. If he, he collects your money, he may die. He may die. You are a superior species. Come on. So no fears. No panics. But the point I'm making is this. If you are giving a beggar money, and like I said last week, make sure the person is worthy of your money. It's not everybody should give money. The Bible does not, does not teach us to tolerate the lazy. In the Thessalonian letter, Paul warned, anybody that does not work should not eat. Hmm? And that was his own personal principle. So he said, if you see anybody who is disorderly, that's the phrase, disorderly, who does not abide by this ordinance, mark them and avoid them. So that they will be ashamed. Anybody will not walk, make it no chop. So if I see a beggar who can walk, I try to encourage them to walk. Okay, that's the scripture there. I try to encourage them to walk. But it's still okay to say, let me just give. These days, I am very sympathetic. The economy has been in shambles, really. And one of the ways I encourage or I give is not by giving, looking for beggars. If I patronize a woman, okay, and I buy, how much is your coke? I don't take coke anyway, but that's a bad example. But let's use bottle water. How much is your bottle water? Say, okay, it's 100 naira. I give the person 500 naira. She brings a change. I say, leave it. That's somebody who's working. I would prefer to give my money to that person. The person is working. So keep the change. Many times I've seen people, even if they're not necessarily doing trade, the other day I saw a woman back in a tide in the hot sun. She was not begging. Maybe she was waiting for a taxi. I said, please, ma, am I, you know, I want to give your baby a gift. Say, my baby? He said, yes. So I asked Perez to squeeze 1,000 naira in the young boys. And that's, that's a better way to use to be charitable. Not like you see people that are, their hands and legs are complete and they are begging. There's no, I don't, there's no, don't prioritize those kind of people. There are many other people you can give to. Amen? Yes. So please note that. All right? This fifth question or thereabout. This person, first of all, says, thank you, PJ, for all the teachings. He now goes on, or she now goes on to say, I would like you to create a balance between sports betting and FX trading. Let us calm down, please. People use the fact that since what you do in trading is prediction and analysis, I would say different from sports betting, where you also predict and sometimes analyze and both involve money loss or gain. Thank you, sir. Well, by the way, it's not as straightforward as you think it is. I, have, I know revered men of God who classify two of them in the same category, who say FX trading is just like MMM. Yeah. I am, and I don't know why they say that, but the people that I've heard say that are not children. They have their reasons. They are not illiterate. And they have their reasons. But I don't really agree. Even though I, I have not traded FX before. So I am not an authority in FX. Forex trading, I am not an authority in it. But I think it is more similar to buying stocks and trading stocks than 
gambling and error bets. I don't think it's a good comparison. Say FX trading and error bets gambling. Firstly, one is a function of something that you are not often in control of. When you gamble on, let's say, sport, Nigeria is playing Kodiva. By the way, it's a bad time to really gamble on Nigeria. Even NTA is not showing their match again. I mean, the sport industry in Nigeria has been so, so terrible, really. <laughs> okay, now you are not in control of that. However, I think the way FX works is that you are investing money and there's a general overview of economic activities. This is likely, for instance, the cost of gold is likely to increase or it's likely to decrease. And based on that financial intelligence, you can predict the stock to buy or you can predict the currency to buy. Just like buying dollars and keeping. My wife has bought dollars. When did you buy the dollars? How much was dollars? When you bought it? She bought it at 400 naira. I told her, keep it. I'm not a prophet, neither am I a prophet's son, but I am smart enough to know what Agbado economy will do to Nigeria. I say, keep it. Just wait. It's not prophecy. I know, I know how the country will end up. I know. You, it's not about being optimistic or pessimistic. There are simple things you just say, this is how it's going to be. I say, keep it. When the dollar is 2K, we go sell them. Oh, for now, give her And it go return. It's not a curse. And it's not, your prayer will not change it. When you people don't understand, there are principles of sowing and reaping. You can't, you can't do party convention and you give delegates thousands of dollars and expect Naira to rise. You feel like prayer and fast. It doesn't work like that. You can't travel to Dubai and carry 1,400 delegates. I mean, how many? Are you, are you saying that Naira should rise? Naira rise where? What are you exporting? If you like faster, if all the gods are faster, pray to it It's not a prophecy. It's just common sense. Nigerians are very religious, honestly. You go favor me and my family. Okay. If you have dollar, it will favor you. So if you have dollar, keep it. It's inevitable. Until we start exporting, the nether will not rise. Whether they borrow money to add on into the foreign savings account, just you know, you know how economies work. Amen. So, that's, if you buy dollar and keep it, it's like FX trading. Keep it. It's not in the same category as Patete, Chelsea, we win, Man U tonight. First to score, Marcus Rashford. It's not, that's not, that's not real. I don't, that's, that, it's not a fair comparison. Are we clear? Okay. Please, how do I hear the voice of God and discern his will for a new season of life? concerning the direction and the problem. I know it has been said that it is easy to hear God. How do I hear what he's saying to me is something? How do I hear what he's saying to me? Is there something I am doing wrong? If you are struggling to hear, I will encourage you to eliminate the noise. God is more eager to speak than we are eager to hear. But you need to eliminate the noise. Many of us are trapped in social media prisons. Trapped in, you know, many voices. And these voices have become louder than the voice of God. God is always speaking. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 
God always wants to speak. However, it is your hearing that is defective, not necessarily the voice of God. God is not withholding direction. He doesn't. However, if you are too crowded and you are too overshadowed with several influences that distract you from the voice of God, you will not hear God. So that's why people take retreats when they want to make decisions that involve divine direction. They shut out the noise. They shut out the noise. You go on fast. The idea is to remove the noise in your soul. Some of the noises, if noise is in plural, but some of the noise in your souls are not even noise of the present conversation. They are noise of three years ago. Anxiety, fear, hurt, offenses, bitterness. For instance, if you are a lady, you have four heartbreaks. And a guy came to meet you and said, I feel led that you should be my wife. You say that. You say, you will likely say, on today, I've come again. That's how Brother John said. And he left me after two months. That's how Brother Tunde said. And so you need to heal from those things. Do you know what I'm saying here? You need to totally heal. Because those things will become a noise in your soul that would block your ears and block your heart from hearing God. So eliminate the noise. Then secondly, seek practical wisdom. I think the problem with our generation is that we don't know how God speaks. How did God speak to the apostles? How many times do you see them led by specific audible voice? For instance, there was a doctrinal debate in the early church, the first doctrinal debate. It was an issue of the apostles relating with the Gentiles. Peter went to Cornelius' house. He ate there. But he couldn't do that until he had a vision. So what triggered that action was a vision. Because even Peter, his mind was not, as it were, renewed to understand that God had a plan of salvation for the Gentiles. So a vision came to him and he was instructed, whatever I have called clean, don't call unclean. So he went by divine direction to Cornelius' house. But subsequently, there was an argument. James was not too comfortable with the fact that Peter, because he too was not too renewed. I said, wow. They were very Jewish in their perspective. Are you listening to me? What did Peter do? Peter explained. First of all, he referenced the vision. Oh, I had a vision. Okay. But much more than that, there were doctrinal debates and arguments. But according to this scripture, this is the right thing to do. According to this scripture, the Gentiles should be included in the plan of salvation. They did not say, we are going to wait for God to confirm that what Peter did is true. God must speak. He must send an angel. I must hear God. No. They reasoned it out together. There is a place of reasoning things out with your spiritual mind. Many Christians are lazy. They don't want to use their minds. They just want to say, God, speak to me. Tell me. Say clearly. Is it Tunde or John? Is it Tunde or John? Is it Big Pay or Shade? Why don't you examine the evidence? Look at the matter. Look at it thoroughly. Examine it. Shade, she's a good girl. But, but, her papa say, lie, 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 lie. She must not marry anybody. We no get money. Okay. I believe she got a little bit to Shade, but look at this being paid. My good girl, too. This one, 
I know you shall say, proper mind, say, I just did start up life. Because some of you are going to toast people that uh, it's not about the will of God. It's that they, they may have to break covenant with parents for them to marry you. Yeah. They may have to say, okay. They may have to disown their father. And God has called us to peace. Because it's in short. Amen. Okay, you think I'm kind of... You know, see... There are specific things that God can instruct you towards. However, most times, God teaches you how to make choices. That's what God does. He teaches you how to make decisions and choices. I was telling a young man today, I said, tell your parents, dad and mom, you trained me. If you trained me in the will of God, why are you afraid of me making my choice? Maybe you trained me. You trained me now, so why are you afraid of me making my choice? I mean, not you train me. Am I a bastard? So, God trains you. He teaches you. That's what he does most of the time. On things like marriage, you may never hear specific, it is being paid, not today, you may never hear that. You will have to examine, analyze what has been said before you. Shade is good, she speaks in tongues. Being paid is good, she speaks in tongues. Okay, tick, tick. Sade's father is a billionaire. Wait. Yes, wait, wait, wait. You don't understand what I'm saying, Duro. Sade's father is a billionaire. She has already planned that after school, Sade is going to Canada. Now, I am here. I don't have any sponsor. Being paid is still available. She's not from a luxurious home. Listen, I will get there, don't worry. Listen. I'm not marrying because of money, I know. But what's the most realistic option? Don't be stupid. Be, it's not, it's, what many of you call optimism is that you are not realistic. You are not realistic. Because even the Sade that wants to marry the will of God may have been trained to believe that will of God must be financially stable. So why are you stressing people? Say, it's not my money. I know. I know. But this person, all her life, she has built a strong gold in her soul. I can't climb Okada. I can't be like Mama Dio. I'm climbing Okada. God not coming to come and suffer. Now, you now go and say, no, you must obey God. You are going to become a manipulator. Not like that. It is not realistic. Are you listening to me? It's not realistic. It's not about Shadez uh, Kana. You can call her Kana. That's your problem. But you cannot force the parents to be spiritual because they want to marry you. And you cannot call the parents, Kana. That would be an insult that already disqualifies you. So why, why are you stressing yourself? Just say, Mama signs with this. And together, you and being paid can eventually build a billionaire industry. Amen. Yeah. You know, when I see people just say, no, you must be sad, you must be sad. <laughs> okay. You will grow old like this, insisting on what is not. Available to you. Amen. Amen. I noticed that all the apostles of Jesus were from the same location. <laughs> Jesus did not have any apostles from China. It was amongst himself. He chose. <laughs> now you, they go far place. You, they, you be CAC. You, they go Christ and the fine wife. <laughs> what did they do you? 
Why she come marry you? Because we don't wear trousers here. We are CAC. You are a wicked person. What is your problem? Are you listening to me here? Learn the wisdom of making decisions. It's not, it's not that many of us, it's already Kokoro that is doing us. That's the truth. You, there are some things that will just stress you for nothing. Because when it comes to things like marriage, it's not only the girl that is, that is involved. Yeah. Ah. Now, now you go wed yourself. No, you go wed yourself now. There are churches that they are not allowed to wed outside that denomination. Why are you not stressing yourself? But I must marry dear. Okay, continue. They will now say, no, no, you have married. You have to change your church and become a member of our church because we cannot give our daughter out. Why? For what? So, well, there are some things you should just know. This is not, I'm not saying you're a bad person or you're not a good Christian, but you know they might arrange. Arrange is a relative term. But the point I'm making is this. If you are struggling to hear God, find practical wisdom on how to make decisions. Wisdom. That's what God gave Solomon. In the day when two women came and said, our child, uh, my child, is my child. Solomon did not say, oh God, what should I do? He did not hear another good voice. He had wisdom to decide. Ah, this is the real mother. Based on what she said, this is the real mother. It's wisdom. Wisdom is profitable to correct. Get wisdom. Read books. Hear sermons. It's not everything that be audible voice, audible voice, audible voice. Read books. Get practical decision-making skills. And then you can make a decision and you will likely be correct because your wisdom was sourced in God. And by the way, if, you, if your heart is genuine, if you make a decision that she was honest, but it is wrong, honestly wrong, God will tell you. He will find a way of communication to you. Now, I know you were honest too, but you are wrong. Abimelech, or is he Abimelech now? He took Abraham's wife. He was going to consume her. Then God showed him in the night, say, you are a dead man. Say, Mikael, what's he I do? You took somebody's wife. The man said, goodness me. She, he told me he's her sister. God said, I know that you have a pure heart. That's why I'm warning you. Or I return it. Or return her. And tell the man to bless you. Because he's a prophet. You want to carry the wife of Woli. You will die. All your family will die too. The man's heart was pure. He made a choice based on the purity of his heart. But he was still wrong. And then God warned him. Do you understand this now? So I show you. A young man told me God was leading him to marry me for marriage. I'm a year older than him and some other personal reasons that I have that I have that made me not to even pray about it before telling him a no. I have no emotional feelings for him at all. I'm not physically attracted to him. He's been a friend for years. I don't know what to do as I'm beginning to see him as I could be with I am beginning to wait now. Oh, that's who they vex. I'm beginning to see him as I could be with. Okay. He loves God genuinely, which is one of the things I admire. I have prayed and asked God to bring him back, but nothing. I could have waited now. But, but nothing has happened. After you pray, go and meet the man and tell him, guy, that's the way you talk. I don't change my mind. Eat your humble pie. You are not asking him out. You are not asking him out. He's the one that asks you out. And only God knows he may have been praying to and saying, God, change your heart, change your heart. Go and say, away, I was wrong. I was blind. Now I see. 
eat your humble pie. That's a punchline for somebody, right? I was once blind, but now and they're hugging and say, when is the proposal? That's all. That's all. You don't have to now do a giddy and say, God, tell him, God, God, wait see. Say now, God, say no to, to, to the man. Now you say no. Because you say you didn't pray about it. You just said no. Because you are here older than him. By the way, there's nothing wrong with marrying people that are older than you. The only, the only timeline I'll give is if it's five years. If a woman is older than five years and this is because of the latter years of life. There are a lot of things that will happen in the latter years. So I'll tell you, if that's the only option, why don't you wait and look out for a few other options? But that it is wrong for one year, two years, three years to marry, come on. So even when they talk, say age is just a number. <laughs> Glory to God. All right, this question here is for married people. But I have to also say it. Many of my audience are also married. What are your thoughts on sex toys in marriage? Some of you are pretending, but you know better than me. You know better than me in this matter. Whenever you say, ah, oh, hey, ooh. What are your thoughts on sex toys in marriage? First of all, it is a no, first of all. I'll tell you when it is now permitted, and I'll tell you why it's a no. It is a no because God designed marriage to be an exploration between two human bodies. Once there's an external factor that facilitates pleasure, that external factor can become a tool that distracts you from the body of your spouse. Many women particularly singles, they have vibrators, they have um, a lot of sex toys, that they, and they say it does a better job than a man. All of these things are fast, facilitated perversion and can aid masturbation and pornography. Except a man that you married is impotent. I mean, completely impotent. There's no justification for sex toys. But you say it's not, it's not important, but it's also not potent. Pray. The solution is not to say, I have bought a sex toy. We're using it. No. If you don't know what sex toy is, don't worry. You don't have to know. <laughs> but the point I'm making here is that any external facilitator of sexual pleasure among married people is dangerous. So if your husband travels and you're honey, you now see the sex toy. I don't need Tunde. I have Tunde's two in here. You begin to practice masturbation, solo sex. Do you understand what we are saying here? So you say, the only time where it is legitimate is if there is absolute impotence. And it should only be used on you, not that you use it on yourself. That is, your husband should be the one or the wife, in whatever case, to use it. But when it is now solo, every act of solo sex is wrong, sinful, abominable, immoral. Same category as masturbation and pornography. Is that clear? Yes, right. What do you do when you have this perception that you are to be an instrument of deliverance for people and especially your family that is break certain generational patterns? How should one go about this? Prayer. Pray, 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 pray. You pray. 
You fast especially. And you pray. You pick people's names up. Wake up at night. Call their names up in prayer. Call their names up in prayer. You fast, you pray. It's intercession. There's no other way you're going to break generational patterns. You pray. Pick their names. Pick their pictures. Wake up at night. Pray. Pray. And then you deliver them. You don't have to lay hands on them. It's not necessary. How can one stay encouraged and carry on a ministry even if it seems tiring and discouraging coupled with life challenges? First of all, ensure that you are called. It is only the certainty of a call that keeps you going in the face of challenges. If you are not sure that you are called, you will quit. There is no bed of roses when it comes to ministry. We taught you this last two weeks or last week. Ministry is not a platform for ease and convenience. It's not a money-making venture. It is a rough road, a tough road. It is not for the weakling. It is not for the coward. It's not for the timid. It is for strong people, people who are brave. So, if somebody is not even sure that he has a call, he's going to quit. He's going to turn back after putting his hands on the plow. He's not fit. He's not a soldier. So, be certain of the call. Secondly, get your definitions of ministry right. We have defined ministry wrongly. That's why many people believe that they have failed. Meanwhile, they are succeeding. If you look at the ministry of John the Baptist, you call him a failure. They didn't have any ministry brand or logo. The Bible even says he did not do any miracle. Can you imagine? John the Baptist did not one miracle. Not one. You would have easily called him a failure. Nobody would have called John the Baptist a God's general. <laughs> I've even heard several demeaning things about the man because he was beheaded. You see, the point I'm making is this. Our definition of success in ministry is perverted. That's why people think that they are failing even though they may be succeeding. So get your definitions right. Don't allow greed and covetousness define ministry for you. Ministry is not showbiz. We said it last week. It's not showbiz. It's not being welcomed by beautiful ushers on a door. It's not entering a private jet and taking a selfie. That's not ministry. Ministry involves toil, labor, sweat, blood, sacrifice. That's ministry. If you're going to do it the way Jesus did it, then that is the only way to do it. If you're going to do ministry the way Paul did ministry, you can check out his letters. He says, I die daily. I battle the beasts of cities. In fastings, in turmoils, in betrayals. Come on. That's ministry. We have wrongly defined the concept. That's how many people say, ah, things are tough. What were you expecting? You expected things to be smooth? Join the workforce of Nigeria Labor Congress. Even that one too will be tough. But ministry is always going to be tough. Are we clear on that? What advice would you give to persons starting life independently as regards calling and career? Well, once again, be sure you're doing what you're supposed to do. I've spoken about ministry. Let me speak about career. Your career should be enough to at least make you a responsible person to have enough for yourself and have enough to give. However, if you start independently, meaning you are probably starting up a new business, starting up a career that is not too well paid, learn contentment. Learn contentment. That's a good place to start. Some of us are too covetous, too greedy. What we are supposed to save, we end up using to buy a shoebi. 
we end up using to buy iPhone 14. Many of the luxurious lifestyles are sponsored by people who do not understand the principle of contentment. You don't have to use the latest car. You don't have to use the latest phone. You don't have to do a society wedding. Learn as a young man, as a young woman, you are just in the beginning of your life and career. Take things slowly. Your honeymoon does not have to be in Dubai. You don't have to take a loan for naming ceremony. All of this excessive, all of the things that has caused poverty in Africa is excessive spending. Things that are not important, you see people just investing in it, buying it, you know, and it's uncalled for. Are we clear on this? If you're starting out independently in life, cut your coats according to your size. As it were, do what you can do. I told you severally, I've told you severally, when I was a young man growing up, I was not the best dressed person. I mean, my wife did not like me because I won best dressed award in my school and my church. If I any award, I win any award, I win worst dressed, if there was anything like that. But I was always tidy. Even though I was not luxurious, I was tidy. That shirt I have, I will wash it. I mean, I have to wash every day, but I wash it. That trouser, you can ask my wife, I went about every day with a rag in my bag. The rag was not a dirty rag. What was the rag for? To clean the dust that is accumulated from my feet. I never walked around with a dusty shoe. It was an old shoe, but I never walked around with a dusty shoe. I would put a rag in my bag and dust it. It is old, it is torn, it is worn out, but it is clean. I packaged what I had. And here am I today. The days have changed, the seasons have changed, but I started from this class too. Amen. Amen. So stop trying to impress people that are not even going to ever like you. Some of the people that you're trying to impress will never like you. If you like, win a Grammy. If you like, become president of the country, they will never like you. So trying to impress them, borrowing, to, I told you last week, borrowing coats, borrowing tie. Borrowing, stop it. Person will go like you, go like you. My wife liked me, and she still does. Amen. People that now say, I used to know him when I was in London. I say, yes. And as you can see, my levels have changed. You didn't like me then, you're trying to like me now. Well, you will have to enter a queue because there are many people trying to like me too. If you don't like me in my bad days, don't like me in my good days. Glory to God. So stop trying to impress anybody. Live your life. Use what you have. Be prudent. Be content. That's how you have a, a new business. You are doing, you are doing end of the year ceremony party. Yeah? All the profits you want to use to kind of be sharing rice. What is wrong with you? You're trying to act like a nice guy. Hey, oga, oga tolewa. Oga, they, have, they have used alien to collect money from you. Oga, oga, anything for the oga, oga, you to bring money. You are, you are spraying. At your, age, at your age level in life, I mean, you are spraying money. You, you, you are spraying money. Come on. He said the talking drum. Talking, the person was talking drum. My head was spinning. What are you talking about? You are, you, are a, you are a very weak person like that. You can be easily manipulated. Talking drum. And they bring money for your hand. Talking drum. Why nobody say they put juju for it? If they will put juju for it, I'm saying that you're supposed to cut. Why you see young men do something and go to a wedding? Yeah, I mean, of it. You wanna? I can't even. You wanna? Wanna know? Oh no, I could know. Oh no. The alaga that uh, did my wife's wedding. If I see that woman today, I hold her by the neck. <laughs> I have a. Special place in my heart for her. Timothy, you were there. You can ask him. I saw Shaggy, Pro Max. We had to go out and collect money from the ATM. This woman was wicked. 
She will collect money from her wife. Who collects money from who's allowed to collect money from the bride? Wickedness in high places. She now said, Let us pray. I said, Pray what? One of my friends, Brother Tayo, he was so angry. He said, Please don't pray in Jesus' name. Pray in the name of Mammon because that's the God we serve. Young ladies, you don't have to make things difficult for young men. I spoke about Shadi and being paid at that time. You see some wedding list you want that kill all day? Say a ball and share, be wedding and share. What are we doing? Look, this courage. That's why you say nobody's asking me. Who we ask you out? They have sized you up. They have seen you are, you are quite materialistic. They have seen it. So, well, you see, that's why nobody wants to marry early again. People say, I must first make it to, I must, so I'm married 36, 37. You're not married. You have a child. It's not like your grandchild. Come on, that's not the way life should be. But it's because the, the pressure people put on young people. He raised his car. Does he have a car? Daddy, when you were his age, did you have a car? What's the problem? When you were his age, when you just started, did you have a car? Some people saw your wedding pictures. You are mommy. Some people use Eba to do cake, Eba. They corrected it. Cut, they cut it, but uh, <laughs> after they carried it inside, yeah, you don't know. Go and ask your fathers. They will tell you the stories. But now, pressure. That's why young men are doing terrible things just to make money. It's unnecessary. If you're starting as a life, be content. And that's why I'm saying, as far as with marriage, don't marry materialistic people. And don't marry people who insist that wealth is the only source of comfort. It's dangerous. You're going to hurt yourself. It may just be that that's the only way they, they have learned to live. But don't check your head inside it too. Because some of you will not be wealthy until the next 10 years. That's the truth. Some millionaires in the United States, they became wealthy in their 40s, in their 50s. In Africa, everybody expects you as a party old man. You must have everything. You must have a car. You must have a house. Yeah, how? Let's be serious, oh. Amen. Amen. What do you do when you have the perception that you are meant to be an instrument? Okay, I've said this. I've answered this. Does God hear an answer when Christians pray in tongues in their minds? First of all, praying in tongues should not be in your mind. If you are praying in tongues in your mind, they are doing it wrong. Praying in tongues is an all-trans gift. All-trans. You say it out. In fact, the louder, the better, except you are in a public place. So, every prayer said is heard. However, but praying in tongues and prayer is not just about God hearing it. Sometimes Satan has to hear it. Situations has to hear it. Whoever shall say to this mountain, be thou moved and cast it to say. If I say in my mind, you say God hears it. I know God hears it, but does the mountain hear it? So prayer is not just about what God hears. It's verbalized power. Where the word of a king is, there is power. So if the king says, can't you see my mind? King, speak. Hallelujah. Amen. God himself spoke the word into existence. Spoke the word into existence. So why would you now want to limit everything to your mind? It's not potent that way. So please note that. Praying in tongues, once again, it's not just about God hearing you. Praying in tongues, in fact, is basically about creating an environment for reception. Praying in tongues is charging your battery to function. 
potential or to function in his full potential. Many times we pray in tongues, not necessarily so that God will hear. It's a charging battery act. That, I, For instance, I was praying in tongues this morning and um, I had not asked God about that particular thing and I was not even praying in that direction. In fact, my mind was wondering about a lot of things but I was praying in the Spirit. And suddenly wisdom just emerged about the particular situation, just emerged that put it like this. So, everything you need has already been given in your spirit. Praying in tongues unveils it, opens it. So, and if you pray out loud, you are going to probably get faster results. Is that taken? This person is not really asking a question, it's just is asking me to do something. He says he wants to hear teachings on end time, such as rapture and tribulation. If the Holy Ghost gives us utterance next year, we'll do that. This question says, how do I meditate effectively on scripture as said? Well, to meditate is to think upon. Take a verse of scriptures, read it in several versions. Play with it. What I mean by play with it is look at it from various translations. Paint pictures about the scriptures. For instance, how do I meditate on Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. Imagine yourself being a sheep. And imagine Jesus as your shepherd. I shall not want. Imagine yourself having everything you need because there's a shepherd that provides for you. Think about it. Imagine. Okay? Are we clear on that? It's as simple as that. Meditation is about getting your mind to ponder, to imagine, to think. For scriptures, the simple thing you can do is read it in several versions. The scriptures will make more meaning when you see it from different angles. And then read commentaries of that verse. Read what Spurgeon wrote about that verse. Read what Wesley wrote about that verse. So the scripture will now come alive. It will, it will really be a stronghold like that in your mind. Next question. What are the things that renewing the mind as a Christian entails? Well, get my teaching on building positive strongholds. Or basically it involves thinking what God wants you to think about and then saying what tallies with the word of God and then hearing what tallies with the word of God. It's as simple as that. Thinking that involves hearing and saying what tallies with the word of God. That's basically what um, renew your mind is. Word of God does not have to mean verse 16, chapter 19. However, if you are to renew your mind concerning sex, for instance, I was counseling somebody and I told the person, everything you have heard about sex is a lie because you've never had sex. You can't define it based on another person's experience. The porn actor is acting. <laughs> Many of them take injections. They say nine rounds. You will die. What are you talking about? Do you know the drugs that some of those people use to copy on TV screens? So your friends who have gotten where they told you this what sex is, they are still not, it's still not an experience you can rely on because it's a personal, intimate experience. It's too personal. So renew your mind with what God So ask, what does the word of God say about sex? And let that be what you, what you believe about it. Are we clear on that? Okay. Is it okay for a lady to think that purpose and fulfillment can be linked and tied to your husband. The word okay does not do justice to the question. 
so I'm wondering what okay means, but I'll try and explain. Let me read the conclusion. I read of a minister's wife that wrote that being married to her husband didn't just make her a wife, but a purposeful woman. I think the person is also asking, what should a lady who has the conception that she's going to be married to a minister or pastor do as well as preparing or grooming herself? Eh? Yes. This may not go down well with many feminist minded women but you cannot separate leadership from marriage and in marriage the man leads by the way brothers are you listening to me the kind of woman that Jesus commands you or scriptures command you to marry a woman in the order of Sarah look at how Sarah lived hmm? and look for wife like Sarah don't look for Jezebel wife and be complaining Look for wife, like Sarah. Now study Sarah. Sarah did not, in any sense, as documented in scripture, hear from God about destiny. Sarah simply followed Abraham wherever he went. Abraham said, all right, we are going to that tent. The Lord said we should move. Yes, boss. Leave your father and your mother. God didn't tell Sarah. God told Abraham. Abraham told Sarah. Sarah said, yes, boss. That, you see, we have complicated wife office. It's the easiest role. But we have many independent women <laughs> that actually are going to cause problems for their husbands in the future. For instance, my wife had a thriving career as an HR personnel in Lagos, gained fully employed. Her salary was three times my salary. She married and she had to leave Lagos and come to Gumosho to be Mamadi. You think it was easy for her? You think if she was a feminist, she would not say, now you go call Lagos. You can do military in Lagos. There are souls in Lagos. Leave a Gumosho. In fact, your military is too international to be in a Gumosho. But she said, wherever he leads, I will follow. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Your geographical location will be my geographical location. That's a wife. That's a Sarah. And I see women who say, ah, me. Well, I cannot stay in this place. I say, wait to are you cutting somebody? Yes, please. You, you don't talk like this. Confirm from the person you are cutting where he thinks that God will have you be. There are too many independent wife. My wife, in fact, she has, if it is, she should have left the country. She has left the country since. Her auntie has been on her neck. What are you doing in Nigeria? What are you doing in Nigeria? What are you doing in Nigeria? Livo, Livo. They sent her many links. Say, apply. And the only reason why she stayed was that my husband does not seem to have a future abroad, at least for now. The first opening ministerially I had was out of this country, South Africa. The first person I called was my wife. They asked me, Rama Chapel Ekota, would you want to go to South Africa? Because somebody there, the pastor of the South African church, heard me preach a 15-minute sermon. And he said, who is this guy? I'm taking him as my assistant pastor to South Africa. This guy is too good to be in Nigeria. He called me and said, this is what this person said, I said, well, I don't think I should make the decision. Let me allow the senior minister and child revenger decide that. But I called my wife and I said, what do you think? Do you think we have a future out of this country? She said, well, not too sure. But whatever you say is fine. I said, well, no problem. So when we say women submit, it does not mean we will not consult them. But the whole idea of, I will just go. What are you talking about? Eventually, revenger said, well, I've heard this man's case and it's too good to be in South Africa. 
The only church that befits him is the headquarter. Six months later, they sent me to Bumosho. So, our times are in his hands. But there's a principle of submission. Orderliness. Are we clear? Many ladies cannot be serious. Cannot be. They are not, because what you are hearing on Twitter, what you are reading on Twitter, <laughs> you can't, you can't, you, Abraham cannot tell you, leave your father and your mother. We are going. And you say, you say, I know you don't want to. Mr. God, Holy Ghost, which I must hear. And you say, your wife. Do you know what wife is? Do you know what husband means? Say, my love, my love. Sarah said, my Lord, my Lord. And that's how Sarah called Abraham. So, you know, many women see marriage as escape from fathers. She could have delivered me from my father. And now I'm going to my lovey, where I can do what I like. <laughs> Welcome to prison 2.0. That's why your prison must be a good prison. All of us are in prisons. I am in prison too. I'm not allowed to even sexually think about another woman. I'm in prison. All of us are in prisons. <laughs> but I'm in a good prison. Amen. My prison continues, and I'm enjoying the prison experience. I may I not be delivered from this prison. So everybody has to choose their prisons. But then I say, I'll be independent. I'm free. You can't do marriage like that. You can't do marriage like that. Back to the question. I've not even answered it. <laughs> so purpose and performance, yes, is tied to your husband. This does not mean God does not have a plan for you. But this means that God is the one that sets solitudes in families. God knows already that there will be a child given birth by the Lord of my family called Perez. He knows. He sent Perez to my house because he trusted me with Perez's destiny. If I'm traveling and I say, well, I'm leaving the country, Gomosha don't tire me, ministry is not progressing in Gomosha, I'm going to Canada. Perez now says, and he's, he's dependent on me, maybe he's, he's nine. And I say, Daddy, I'm not led to Canada. Huh? Yeah. That's how it sounds like when you say, eh, as a woman, I have my own life to live. No, God sets the solitaries in families. Family is God's idea. It's not society's idea. Imagine Adam being chased from Eden. Then Eve say, me, I don't go go. <laughs> what happened to Adam happened to Eve. <laughs> What happened to Adam and Eve happened to Abel and Cain. You see, we're trying to become individualistic. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. When Joseph, when Jesus was going to preserve the old Jesus, it was Joseph that was told, they are going to kill you and your son. Wrong. Jesus was too small to receive visions and dreams as a God. It was Joseph that was told. When you see this individualistic mentality, you know that this person does not know God. So, if you want to be a family, if you want to be a, a mother, you know a mother? Okay, sister. You know sister? But if you, if you marry, please don't cause trouble for anybody. If you marry, understand that marriage is about cohesion, togetherness. Glory to God. Togetherness. So if I am in the ministry, my wife is expected to support me because I am the leader. Does not mean she does not have a life. I'm supposed to also support her 
in whatever God has helped her to achieve or to do. We're supposed to support her. If it is God-given, there's supposed to be a merging of divisions, a merging of the purpose. But to make it look like, no, imagine a woman say, eh, as well as a pastor, or me, I'm a doctor of Pastor Chris Oyakolome. I cannot be attending my husband's church. You are a witch. What do you mean? And there are Christians like that. Say, ah, me, I cannot live. Ah, ah, I'm submitted to my papa. Nobody can bless my life like my papa. You have a new papa now. It's your husband. And if you don't understand the implication of marriage, you better think about it. Are you listening to me? My wife had a pastor before I married her. When I married her, I was a pastor. And I'm now a pastor. I don't think she has ever heard any other message. Or I don't think she has gone to hear the sermons of a pastor. Our pastor was not a bad pastor, a great man. One of the people I respect greatly. Greatly. I told her that. It's not a flattery. I told her that. Even before we married. Ah, pastor Shalom, we call you top guy. Top guy. However, now, she is now in my space. I'm now the leader. I don't expect that they will say, I'm going for service online. Rema Chapu Ketu. What's that? Are we clear on that? So, your purpose must not make you appear as a rebel to your husband. You say, I have purpose, no problem. God could tell you for a purpose. But God says the solitary in family. What was Eve's purpose? People talk about marriage as if it's a 21st century innovation. Now, are you the first person to get married? Now, you invent marriage. Oh, it took Eve to know her purpose, Abby. It didn't say that it did not have purpose. It was Adam that named Eve. It was Adam that actually defined Eve's purpose. He said, I call you mother. If you know what marriage is, you will know why God rates it highly. I mean, people don't know what marriage is. They think it's just two individuals doing their own thing. That's not marriage. As the Bible teaches it. That's why. But I think a lot of issues with women marrying unbelievers, women marrying on serious Christians, marrying a man who cannot even hear God, who does not understand the ways of God. And I'm saying, should I, should I really submit to him? Because you don't even trust him. Trust him. So if you feel that you're going to marry a pastor as a lady, how do you groom yourself? Just be a Christian. That's There's nothing special about being a pastor's wife. <laughs> My wife is a pastor's wife. Initially when she came, she had her worries. Imagine living in Lagos, the urban life. I'm coming to a good show. All your friends, everybody, you left them. They're not even sure the church, what they look like. Do they wear scarf? Do they wear tie booba? We don't know, but let's go there. Or you're a Christian. You can adapt, you can adjust, you can survive and thrive anywhere. So don't be a Christian. On the, the most important thing is not being a pastor's wife, it's just being your husband's wife. Because church is not home, and home is not church. So just be your husband's wife. What your husband likes, do it. What is comfortable with your husband, do it. Prioritize your husband. Don't prioritize the church. Let your husband, who is the leader of the church, prioritize the church, as it were. Just you prioritize your husband. My first pastor is actually my wife. She prays for me. She prays for me more than anybody here. 
So she's, in a sense, my pastor. I see, show, God see, read a dream to me some days ago. I was looking for something in the dream. And I said, God, give me that gift. So he just said, go and meet your wife. <laughs> so I woke up, I forgot. I was praying the afternoon, I remembered. I, I said, nigga, 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 I saw the dream again, oh. now you're handy there. So, you see, that's the beauty of marriage. Even in that submissive state, that's when you're most powerful. People don't know. People don't know. They think it is slavery. Sarah was so powerful, she sacked Hagar. They see, we won't begin for Abraham. You say, eh, guy, come. You see this babe? I don't want. But you only, you see, that kind of power and authority is only available to those who have paid their dues of submission. If Sarah was always arguing with Abraham, when she comes again, the man will say, you have come again. No. She gave back to a child even before you. You barren tree. Get out. I will keep her. And he would have a right to say that. So, uh, when we say why we submit, because the Bible says so. Now, when I say, eh, eh. you are not the one that invented marriage. The liberal American movement did not, invite, did not invent marriage. Marriage is God's idea. You are going to do it, do it the way God said you should do it. Or else, don't cause wala for us. Is that clear? Yes, Let me take one last question because of time. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, we are meant to understand that they are one. My question is, does it mean when Jesus came to the world to die for us, it was God himself that came to save his creation? Yes and no. Jesus is God, but Jesus is not just God. Jesus is man. I've talked about this severally in my communion services. The wisdom of God to establish and accomplish salvation could only happen if Jesus was both God and man. As God, he was not born by any man. In the sense that Joseph did not impregnate, or Joseph did not make Mary conceive to give back to Jesus. It was the Holy Ghost that overshadowed Mary. So that affirmed the divinity of Jesus. He was not born like the regular human being. But as man, he died. Because God cannot die. So the whole idea of the incarnation is that Jesus was both 100% God and 100% man. There's a phrase in Philippians chapter 2 that says, he humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a servant. What that means is that Jesus added humanity to his divinity. That's all. He did not stop being God per se. He only added humanity to his divinity. And that was for a short period. For his, because well, there are many reasons. Please, This person should please get my summons on captain of my salvation. Jesus, the open door. I thought about this in several ways in those summons. But just both God and man. But the one that died is the man, Jesus. So you can say that God came as Jesus to save his creation. That's correct. But you can also say, and you should also say, that God came as man to save his creation. He could not save us if he could not feel our pains. To feel our pain, he had to become human like us. Salvation has to involve sympathy. In the law of the spirit, whatever you cannot feel, you cannot deliver. 
That's why if Jesus came as an angel, he will not be our savior. It's a law of redemption. You can only redeem your next of kin. You can only redeem your brother. So if your brother is sold to slavery, a stranger cannot come and redeem your brother. It has to be a family member that can redeem, buy him back. So Jesus has to become flesh and blood like us so that he can redeem us. Are we clear? Is there a question from the audience, from the physical audience? Brother Tosin. Okay. Tosin first. No, no, no. no. Tosin first, and I think Precious, and I think still. Thank you very much, sir. Um, Let's take our offerings while this is going on. Okay, so I got the question online, and I didn't see a very satisfactory answer to the question. So the question was directed towards Pentecostals or Charismatics. Said, would you agree with the notion that Christians who don't speak in tongues aren't living a fulfilled Christian experience? If yes, would figures like Charles G. Finney, Billy Graham, and D.L. Moody fit that category? I saw the question too. Firstly, I don't like questions that are deliberately innovated against doctrines that are biblically recommended. If I ask a question and say, would you agree that virginity is not compulsory for living a fulfilled marital life? If I ask that question because I want to rubbish virginity, the question is already pervert. The intention of the question sometimes already makes the question unworthy of an answer, really. For tongues, the controversies have continued on Twitter. I've been seeing it. If somebody does not believe in tongues, it's not a problem. I'm not going to say that you don't, you're not going to have a fulfilling Christian life. I'm not going to say that because I don't have any biblical verse to justify that. But I will say this. I will say what the Bible says. What the Bible says is simple. I think we should be Bible-believing Christians. If any man speaks in tongues... He edifies himself. You can argue and argue and argue whether D.L. Moody, Charles Finney, uh, John Wesley uh, had a fulfilling Christian life. I will tell you that the Bible said if you speak in tongues, you edify yourself. So there is a dimension of edification that is missing when you don't speak in tongues. When you use words like fulfillment, that is not in scriptures. I don't know where they extracted and the implication of that phrase fulfillment. But the Bible is clear that when a man speaks in tongues, he edifies himself. People say, is it compulsory to speak in tongues? No. Is it compulsory to edify yourself? No. Nah. We don't have to make it look like a black and white issue. And those arguments now begin to mention the names of people that have not spoken in tongues and claim that they have a fulfilling Christian life. That's interesting because once again, What's the definition of fulfilling Christian life? Some of these people go to heaven and say, I wish I spoke in tongues. You are here arguing on the air saying, is it, is it, is it, is it, we are very quick to judge. How, how naive are we as fragile human beings to begin to define what fulfilling Christian life is? I can imagine people like Moses saying, wow, this speaking in tongues thing is a great tool of edification. I wish we had it. There's, we are now here, now saying, and you don't have to have it to fulfill your destiny. And Moses is saying, I wish with all the powers of the Holy Ghost that we had, 
This we added this one to this should have made it made, made much of a difference. We are now saying eh, you don't have to have it to be fulfilled. What are we talking about? Let's not underrate what the Bible considers important. No, if the Bible says something is good, let's not begin to say. Eh, but those that did not do it does it mean that they are bad? Come on, that's a, that's a very that's a naive question. The Bible says it is good. The Bible says it is profitable. Stick with that. Listen, you clear? All right, um, precious. Praise the Lord, church. So, I have two questions. And then the first one says that, how does the concept of God's will and free will relate? In the sense that, okay, probably... God's what? God's, what? God's will and, and free our will. free will relate. In the sense that, probably I want to go somewhere. And then, a friend asks me, okay, let me just use this. I have the mind to like cut my hair. Then, probably for like two months, my friends are telling me, don't cut it, don't cut it. And then one day, I just decided to cut it. And in my head, when people ask me, or like some, I don't know how to explain that much, but I, I just went ahead to cut the air. Then I'm like, God asked me, I'll be Holy Spirit asked me to cut the air. So, like, how does it relate with God? I would always encourage you to use the phrase God told me sparingly. Many times, our conscience, based on what we have heard as teachings and doctrines, influence our decisions. I'm not saying God does not speak to people, but many of these issues, like when you talk about cutting air, all of many of those things, it's not often a God told me issue. It's a conscience issue. It's sometimes an ethical issue um, where your conscience takes side with a form of doctrine or a form of instruction. Now, can God tell you things like that? Yes. If yeah, God can tell you. For instance, God can tell you to cut your hair if there's an health challenge that can only be salvaged by cutting your hair. He can. But most times, most times, He may just give general instructions about health. He may not and general leadings about it, nudges. Or let me put it like this, your spirit can pick signals from God that suggest practice this wisdom and to save your life. But don't go about flaunting it. God told me. It's not too important. Okay? You can say it's the right thing to do. Or you can just say, I felt like doing it. That's okay. Or I perceived that was the right thing to do. I know you are giving the everything as an example, but I know that many young Christians are often bothered about things like that. Say, God told me to wear these clothes. God told me to do this extra and all that. I feel that when you play that card, you may, you may sound too mystical. You understand that? But when God tells you something as his will, he expects you to obey. Your free will is that you have the power to disobey. That's the idea of free will. You can say no if you don't want to. And, uh, there will be consequences for that, of course. And many times God will keep trying to let you know, I'm the one talking, no, please do it, or do it, or do it, or do it, or do it, and all that. That's where free will comes in. The will of God, however, um, is general and can be specific. So, for instance, if God has, will, God has a will for your health and he wants you to live long, he can give instructions. Don't do this. Abstain from this food, for instance. Don't eat this because your body is not designed for it or it's hurting your body. All right? And in that case, you can say, God told me. But it's better to say, well, I, I just picked up in my spirit. That's the way 
People like Kenneth Hagin used to talk. I picked it up in my spirit. Your spirit can pick signals from God, even if it's not God directly audibly saying so. Okay? But free will is that you have the right to disobey too, if you want to disobey. Okay? So the quest, second question is that what is the role of Old Testament in our lives and how does it relate to the New Testament? Because really, at times, we like believers, we don't usually go to the Old Testament because we're always like, okay, the New Testament, the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins and then most times we leave the like, Old Testament out. So how does, it, like, how does the Old Testament affect our lives? And then how does the New Testament like, relate to the Old Testament? It is better not to divide it from the books, but to divide it from the event of God's dealings with man after Jesus Christ. What I'm saying here is that it is now that we say things like Old Testament, New Testament, I have a Bible here, and then in the table of contents is written Old Testament, New Testament. In the days of Paul and Peter, there was nothing like this. They just had scripture. And all they had was actually Old Testament. Okay? So when you say Old Testament, from a scriptural perspective, don't define it based on Genesis to Malachi. Alright? And But the way you can see it is the dealings of God in the law and the prophets. And then the dealings of God in Jesus Christ. That's a better way of dividing it. The veil tore when Jesus died. And there many other things happen. The real thing that caused the New Testament to begin is the resurrection. Well, the New Testament does not begin just at the resurrection, okay? But it was finally established at the resurrection. Okay? And then the coming of the Holy Ghost. There are many things that overlaps into one another. But basically, Jesus is the central thing. So the law came through Moses and then grace and truth came through Jesus. Okay? Now, so Old Testament practices. That's also, well, I will recommend my teaching on the Old Testament <laughs> because I cannot really use five minutes to explain it. But many of the Old Testament practices have been fulfilled in Jesus. Killing rams, bulls, sacrifices, fulfilled. All of those things were actually prophecies of Jesus. So Jesus came and fulfilled them. We don't have to practice Old Testament instructions. But many of the Old Testament principles still apply today. So the principle of atonement, that is blood must be shed for sin to be forgiven, it is still applicable today. That if nobody or nobody receives salvation just because they cried, they must believe in the blood of Jesus. It's an eternal principle. So while we are not practicing killing animals, the principle of redemption and atonement still stands. So just understand practices, principles. Many of the practices have been fulfilled in Jesus, but almost all the principles still apply. Because many of the principles of the old covenant were a revelation of the standards of God and the nature of God. So the Old Testament books are still relevant because they reveal. I was studying Revelation. You can't understand Revelations if you don't understand the Old Testament. Many of the symbolisms and the typologies used in the Revelations is from the Old Testament. Because John, who was the apostle of the book of Revelation, or the one whom the Revelation was shown, 
his theology was founded on Old Testament writings, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Genesis. That's what John read. John did not read what we are reading, Galatians and Corinthians and all of that. Okay? So it's, the books are still relevant to help you have a holistic perspective of Christianity. Your perspective must be Judeocentric or Judeo-Christian rather. Judeo-Christian means Jewish and Christian. So Jewish religion called Judaism documented from Genesis to Malachi is still very important. There are many principles to explore from there. Okay? Sorry, my answer may not do justice to the question, but get my teaching on the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. I taught that, I think, last year. You can get it on my Telegram channel, and then you'll be clear. Stephen, last question for today. Thank you, sir. Please, can you speak on the order of hierarchy of creation, especially when it relates to man and angels, then archangels, and creatures like the 24 elders and co? So the order of hierarchy, basically. After God is man, angels, archangels, we, it is safe to say, now, what's the big deal about man? Man is made in the image of God. That's the big deal. We're not talking about abilities. We're talking about identity. Angels, in terms of ability, are stronger than us. If an angel shows up here, 14 people can sleep. But everybody can sleep. Because an angel appeared in their strength. Okay? But an angel does not have the Holy Ghost. Jesus did not die for angels. An angel cannot be called a child of God. In the Old Covenant or the Old Testament writings, the phrase sons of God sometimes is used to describe angelic beings. However, the fact that we are born of God, birthed by God himself, puts us in a class higher than angels. However, by ability and strength, we are not their mate. If they show up and they slap us, the neck may turn 36 times. But by authority and identity, they are messengers of the saints. That is, they are actually our servants. Sent to minister. The word minister is to serve. Heirs of salvation. Okay? But by identity, it's like somebody who is a baby, but is the prince of a kingdom. And a houseboy may have more power than him. That's a baby. But by virtue of authority and identity, that baby's life is more valuable than 10,000 houseboys. That's why Jesus didn't die for angels. There is no redemption plan for angels. The angels who took their first estate are gone forever. They're not that valuable. No, they're valuable, dogs, but compared to us. No, no, no. Jesus didn't die for them. So, same thing with archangels. Same thing with all those creatures. 24 elders, we are not told much about them. All we are told is that they bow to God. Let them continue bowing. We'll join them too in bowing. But in terms of identity, authority, the church is God's greatest treasure. I hope you've learned something. Thank you for your patience. We trust you have been blessed by this message. Kindly reach us for feedback and testimonies through judaholorumai at gmail.com.